Welcome to the Art of Wet AMD, Drug Choice and the Latest Data, a mini-series from New Retina Radio. Dr. Arshad Kanani leads a roundtable discussion about modern approaches to wet AMD therapy with Drs. Christopher Fuller, Nicholas London, and Christina Wang. This is an editorially independent podcast supported by Novartis. Now, let's join the discussion. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Wet AMD Drug Choice and the Latest Data. Here we are talking about art of medicine, utilizing the latest clinical data to treat our patients with neovascular AMD. I'm joined by my esteemed panel, Dr. Chris Fuller, Dr. Nicholas London, and Dr. Christina Wang. In this episode, this is our last episode of this series. We'll discuss real-world safety data and clinical trial safety data in Wet AMD. Also, I'll share a case for the panel to review. Our previous episodes uh, covered switching wet AMD patients to different drugs, phase three data, and pipeline candidates. If you want to catch up, go back and please listen to those episodes. For now, let's get into our safety discussion. First, it will be Dr. Wang talking about bolocizumab. Christina, please go ahead. Thanks very much, Arshad. So I'm going to cover some of the top line findings with regards to safety. This has been a really hot topic in 2020. So in the phase three clinical trials, Hawk and Harrier, which I talked about during the second section of this four-part series, rolocizumab was being studied for neovascular AMD, and it was being compared to a flibercept given every eight weeks. And ocular inflammation was reported to be slightly higher in the rolocizumab group compared to a flibercept at a rate of 4.4% as the combined uh, rate versus only 0.3% in a flibercept. But... These cases appeared to be very responsive to topical therapies, and there were no cases of retinal vasculitis reported. However, post-marketing after the product was launched, reports of inflammation, vasculitis, and arterial occlusions associated with rolocizumab began to collect. And due to these reports of intraocular inflammation, or IOI, including occlusive retinal vasculitis, which had some detrimental visual impacts, Novartis commissioned an independent safety review committee or SRC to review the events and phase three data from the Hawk and Harrier trials. And additionally, the American Society of Retina Specialists rest committee also performed independently an analysis of the collected reports. So here's what we know so far. I think this is still something we're learning about. It's a work in progress. The root cause analysis is still actively being done. But so far what we've seen from the SRC in going back to those patients in the Hawk and Harrier trial was that IOI or intraocular inflammation of any form was found in about 4.6% of patients. And of those, about 3.3% also had a concomitant retinal vasculitis. And excuse me, it's 3.3% of the total number of patients. That concomitant retinal vasculitis appears to be able to affect either the small or large retinal arteries or veins. Additionally, there was an overall incidence of 2.1% of IOI plus vasculitis plus concomitant vascular occlusion. Now, when we're talking to patients about the risk of vision loss, because that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to them, you know, maybe the 4.6% of IOI is something to share with them, but going beyond that, they're not going to be able to grasp that. So a lot of people like to turn this and translate these risks into what it means for potential vision loss. And the numbers that we have so far really are that the absolute risk of developing IOI and then having a moderate level of vision loss defined as 15 or more letters is around 0.7%. 
And if you're talking about the risk of developing IOI and losing severe amounts of vision, meaning six or more lines of vision, that risk is currently quoted, or at least I quote to my patients, about one in 200 based on what we know. I think the part that's hard about inflammation with rolicizumab is that we don't quite understand what makes people predisposed to them and how we're the, uh, and what the optimal way of treating this is yet. So in the study uh, by the SRC, they found that inflammation events were more common in females, but overall, again, most females did not have an event and also in patients with prior inflammation. So that's something to consider. If you have a patient with prior uveitis, that might not be an ideal patient for belucizumab based on what we know. In terms of timing, three quarters of the IOI events presented within the first six months of use. However, that means 25% actually occurred later and some of them much later, out to almost two years after the initiation of treatment. So additionally, the timing didn't seem to correlate to severity of uh, effect in terms of vision loss or uh, level of IOI. So again, we're in this position where we just don't know how to predict this yet. The root cause analysis, as I mentioned, is ongoing, but for now, Novartis is recommending withholding additional brolicizumab if intraocular inflammation has occurred after its use. I think great uh, points, Christina, very well said. I think the key here is that managing risk and benefits of this treatment, obviously it's very potent treatment, but it has a safety profile that's slightly different uh, in terms of rare events, uh, which can uh, end up with vision loss. So I think the, uh, the one thing that's happening is the think tank that I'm also part of looking at uh, multiple things to see why patients are having this and trying to mitigate it. I think at this point, uh, the work is still ongoing, but I think uh, any patients we use this drug on, as we discussed, we need to monitor these patients uh, uh, closely. Uh, Dr. Fuller, how are you uh, monitoring your patients with bolocizumab and the data Dr. Wang presented? Uh, uh, what, what do you do after learning about or what have you done in your practice after learning about these rare events? So as I mentioned in a previous episode, I did in fact have one big vision loser uh, who unfortunately was a monocular patient, but this was in December of last year. Uh, well before these reports started to crop up uh, in phase four data analysis. Since then, I've had one other patient who made me a bit nervous. Uh, fluorescein angiography showed a patchy area of choroidal non-perfusion uh, that was uh, relieved in later phases, but I immediately injected that patient with Ozerdex, uh, and she has done well and recovered, and whether or not that was a true case or a, a pending case of occlusive vasculitis is uncertain. And just today, no more than I'm looking for the text now, four hours ago, I have a lady that lives in distant Fort Stockton, Texas, which is five hours south of here, and her optometrist texted me and said that this patient had come in one week ago with pain in the right eye, I'm reading from this text, during the night, two plus filarin cells, no hypopian, started Predforte 1% Q3 hours, today she is doing much better, no pain, OD looks good, do you think it could be a reaction to a recent injection? And I said uh, his assessment was likely dead on, and given the distance from clinic and, and poor general potential of this eye, he will follow her again in a week. Um, but I'm currently warning my patients for any signs of vision loss, new floaters, discomfort, uh, any remote inkling that something is amiss uh, for them to notify us. And many of my patients have my cell phone. And unfortunately, that privilege is not abused much in West Texas. But I, I am on edge, uh, but still a fan of Bay of Vu, just using it far more cautiously. 
The great, great, uh, really advice, Chris, and you have to be cautious and you really need to mitigate the risk and manage the safety. Uh, Nick, are you doing anything different than what uh, Chris said? Um, are you using the drug and, and how are you managing and mitigating these uh, safety events? Yeah, thanks, Arshad. And uh, no, I agree with everything that uh, Chris and Christina both both said in terms of managing these patients. You know, I do something that I, I thought other people did, but maybe I'm the only person that does it. I bring patients back in about a week after an injection to see if they have any inflammation. Um, I also counsel them on looking for symptoms, but I, I feel that at least I recommend by recommending that they come back in a week, and pretty much everybody has taken me up on that recommendation, at least I'm sort of hopefully going to catch inflammation early if it were to occur. Uh, that would be the only thing I do differently. And I've changed my consent a little bit in terms of these patients, at least my verbal consent for them. So Nicholas, great idea, but with the data about this occurring even two years after first injection, do you plan on continuing that in perpetuity or how will you approach that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, um, I've been doing it pretty much after every injection so far. I'm not using the, the drug nearly as frequently as, as you are, so it has not been a big burden on my clinic yet. Um, but so far, I've had pretty much every patient. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm hoping that I continue to do this and the uh, data monitoring committee or somebody comes up, the, the safety monitoring committee comes up with some sort of uh, root cause analysis that, that's insightful. But for now, I'm going to stick with that. At least I feel like I'm covering my bases in terms of um, uh, hopefully catching these patients early. Yeah, I mean, I think we just don't know when timing-wise it would be the ideal time to, to predictably be able to capture these patients. But I think that, you know, definitely the, the more you look at them, obviously, the more likely you are to catch it if an event does occur. I'd like to ask you guys, I mean, I don't bring them back a week after injections, but I do take a detailed look as I mentioned in my case earlier, at every visit that they're returning for uh, presumes another injection. So when you guys examine patients for inflammation, are you doing just a slit lamp or slit lamp and dilated exam or any other ancillary tests? You guys mind sharing? Yeah, I'll do a, a dilated exam, uh, mm -hmm. slit lamp exam, looking very closely for cell. And I'll usually on these patients get an optos, a, a wide field uh, color sure. photo, just to really analyze uh, closely and have it documented. Great, thanks. Yeah, I, I don't bring them back in a week, do you, but I dilate them every time. Is that what you're doing, Chris? Uh, yes, I do. And, and I actually like Nick's idea about the optos, but my uh, partner has monopolized our unit, so I'd be hopelessly behind in clinic if I imaged everyone. Got it. I think great discussion, guys. Let's move on to uh, our uh, next uh, topic here. Uh, Nick London, can you give us an update on safety of Abikipar, obviously they received the CRL from FDA and the program is on hold, but uh, can you give us the safety data? Yeah, thanks Arshad. So um, this can be relatively quick since Chris did a great job of reviewing the data already. And we, we probably for the most part know this and the fact that the drug, at least for the time being is on hold and, and not something that we're gonna see in our hands, unlike Viavu, which is very much in our hands and, and real and we have to sort of think about so we can, we can get through this probably a little bit more quickly, but as we know, Abisapar was, uh, or Abicapar, I should say, is a drug developed by Allergan, now owned by Abby, uh, and it had the promise of being a you know, Q12-week or longer uh, medication for wet AMD patients, and it was studied in the Cedar and Sequoia studies followed up by the Maple study. Um, in Cedar and Sequoia, they saw a rate of intraocular inflammation around 15.5%, uh, 
um, in the Q8 and Q12 uh, week arms compared to just 0.3% in the monthly ranibizumab arm. So quite a, a striking difference. Most of this inflammation was seen very early within the first four injections of the medication um, in, in probably about 80%, at least the first three injections in 70% of patients. In the majority of patients, the inflammation was mild or moderate uh, of severity, uh, over two thirds of patients, with only about 3.4% of patients having a severe, but that does leave about a third of patients that required either oral or injected corticosteroids to help resolve the, the inflammation. The intraocular inflammation in cedar and sequoia resolved without any sequela in about 75% of patients and with sequela in about 11% of patients um, and was ongoing at the end of the study in nearly 11% of patients. As a result of the inflammation in cedar and sequoia, the, uh, there was a follow-up study, MAPLE, which uh, Chris uh, uh, took us through nicely. And they, they changed the manufacturing process, and I wish I could share some details on what they changed, but it's proprietary information and highly confidential. They were able to get the rate of intraocular inflammation down to 8.9% per study, with only 1.6% of these cases noted as severe intraocular inflammation. As we know, the FDA uh, issued the um, complete response letter um, saying that it would, the drug would not be approved as is. So this complete response letter came out sort of in the middle of the intraocular inflammation noted with Beaview. Uh, and I'm sure that that had some impact on the FDA's decision. They saw a drug which looked good in trials that was approved and then had real world data that showed higher rates of inflammation and a, and a bit of a scare in the community. Um, uh, with some safety data added, added to that label, but the drug is still available. And so I'm sure that impacted their decision a little bit. Essentially, as it is now, the, the, drug, is the, the drug has been suspended uh, and further studies in other countries as well. Uh, well. Well summarized and stated, Nicholas. Your last point, I think, was spot on. I mean, timing is everything. And one can't help but feel for Allergan. I mean, had this drug kind of debuted two or three years ago, you have to think it might be greenlighted by the FDA, and I can't divine their psyche. But in the wake of the Bayavu dust up, I think the bar just got that much higher for any sort of candidate products, uh, especially for a disease for which they're already approved safe therapies. Uh, so, yeah, interesting and I guess unfortunate times for Allergan. Yeah, I completely agree with what you said, Nick. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that the timing of all of this affected that CRL response from the FDA. And you'll see even since the beginning of 2020, with all of these new pipeline developmental therapies that we're looking at and very excited about, you'll see that when people present about them, they really now specifically call out IOI because people are so hyper acutely aware of this issue, which seems to be arising more commonly for a, new, you know, a number of different possible reasons with these therapies that are stronger than ever before and working in different ways. Some of them are surgical, et cetera. So I think it's gonna be at the forefront of everyone's minds. But what I take away from all of this is just looking back to what we have. I mean, we have three very, you know, putting brolicizumab aside, we have three anti-VEGF agents that have set a very high bar, not just in terms of efficacy, but in terms of safety. And so when you've got that high bar, I mean, it's great for us, but it also means that new products coming down the line have high standards to meet and beat. 
And uh, we're not, you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of us are not willing to trade off that safety, especially at the rates that were unfortunately being seen, even still with the Maple study with the revised manufacturing process. Right. I mean, even even nine percent seems like a very high rate of intraocular inflammation, and yep. though it was well controlled in the majority of patients, it was a fairly small study, um, mm -hmm. and so it makes you sort of wonder what have been what would have been in a larger study. What would be a rate of inflammation that's acceptable? Is there a cutoff? Yeah. That's the question that I wonder. I mean, and, and that's why I always like to take it back to the risk benefit assessment, because that number is not going to be the same for all patients and it's not going to be the same for all providers. And that's because everyone has different levels of risk tolerance and because there's different benefits to be gained. So if you have a patient who's responding great to bevacizumab quarterly, which I, I have patients like that, I don't think taking even a 3% risk of inflammation is gonna be good for that patient when we have agents that are much lower than that. However, if you've got a patient who has been refractory to all other therapies that are available and continues to lose vision and really has tried everything out there, you know, are they willing to take a, you know, is that level of risk 4% or even 9%? Would it be worthwhile for that patient? Perhaps. So I think that's what makes this discussion so difficult is there is no absolute number. Let's uh, move on to something uh, uh, new, surgical. Uh, so first, uh, Dr. Chris Fuller will talk about uh, safety of the PDS implant in the ladder and archway studies, and then I'll follow up uh, with uh, RGX314 subretinal gene therapy, as well as uh, ADBMO22 intravitreal injection. So Chris, uh, go ahead and tell us about uh, your key takeaways uh, on safety uh, from the PDS trials. Yeah, sure, thanks, Rashad. Well, I've not personally participated in any of the port delivery studies. A number of my colleagues at Texas Retina have, and I spoke to a few of them this weekend, including Patrick Williams, who knows you, Rashad, and says hello in the hopes of picking their outsized brains and perhaps do some tea leaf reading about whether PDS stands a good chance for FDA approval. As I understand it, the PDS demands good dissection technique, meticulous laser ablation of the exposed cord, an excellent, excellent two-layer closure, and no less illuminary than the crazily-haired Eichamann has been summoned to study meetings to school retinal surgeons on the finer points of surface suturing. And there's really kind of two main complications that have emerged uh, from the latter study. Uh, number one is vitreous hemorrhage, which occurred in nearly half of patients. And now with careful dissection and blanching of the uh, barely exposed choroid prior to device insertion, that's largely been eliminated. A bigger concern, of course, and in the context of our previous discussions today, is the rate of endophthalmitis. And in the 248 patients treated, four cases of endophthalmitis were noted, one with irreversible vision loss. And apparently, I have this on somewhat good authority, that patient uh, clambered into the putrid bowels of a septic tank, and the other three patients recovered baseline vision. Uh, and so I guess it remains to be seen whether that number's too high, um, but those, that, that apparently is the big concern, uh, at least in the uh, months ahead, as, as, as the FDA scrutinizes uh, this uh, exciting device. Great summary, Chris. I think the key with the port delivery system is surgical technique and training. I think this is a new procedure, but not a hard procedure, so I think appropriate training taking care of conjunctiva that retinal physicians are usually not used to. I think those will be the key learnings uh, from the trial. And, uh, and obviously, the vitreous hemorrhage rate got lowered because of the laser, but I think closing the conj right, making the right side wound, right size wound so that the implant stays secure. Too short can lead to bleeding. Too long can uh, you know, lead to dislocation in the vitreous cavity. Also, where the 
incision is the radial paratomy. You don't want it too close to the implant because you don't want exposure. So Nick and Christina, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the safety data uh, for port delivery system. Nick, why don't you start first? No, I mean, I think it seems like a very interesting device and I, I've not had the privilege of implanting one yet or seen it in person. Um, you know, I did the, the uh, virtual reality training and Arshad, maybe you can illuminate me, but it seems like it's a, to me, a little more challenging than creating a subretinal bleb, um, which was another, one of the other things that we talked about for sustained delivery or sustained uh, exposure of medication. Uh, what do you think? Is it really that easy of a procedure? I think it's easy with, with the right training. I think the key is to make sure you do all the steps properly and correctly. And I think it's, it's a unique procedure. It's, it's tedious, you know, it's not difficult. It doesn't require much skills that we don't already have, but I think it's just tedious. I think taking your time and doing the steps, I've done a large number of these. And I think after doing first three or four, I was able to learn what to do and what not to do. And I think I've gotten better, but I agree with you. I think it's something unique and uh, we need training to do that. Christina, have you implanted one or seen a surgery of it uh, to see? I want to hear what your thoughts are. I've seen videos. I haven't done one myself. I mean, I, I like everyone else, I think there's going to be a learning curve associated with any sort of new procedure that we aren't used to doing. And the same goes with PDS. I think one of the issues that kind of caught my eye when the phase three data was being presented at ASRS is how high the rate of conjunctival related complications were. And the reason, you know, a lot of times I think as retina surgeons, we sort of poo poo the, the conjunctiva, um, which we shouldn't, but I think a lot of people don't pay as much attention to that as we perhaps should. There was a, there was a high rate of issues with, relate, with relation to that. And it made me think twice because a lot of these patients are going to be elderly. And uh, as we know, people who are elderly oftentimes have very friable conjunctiva. So it does make me think, you know, that think about patient selection and making sure that that's going to be something that is not going to cause further problems down the road. Yeah, Christina, those, those were relatively high, right? I mean, there was conjunctival yeah. blebs in a, nearly 7% and erosion and retraction in about 2% yeah. of patients. Yeah. So yeah. It, was, um, it was almost 10% when you added up all the categories, yeah. which is uh, pretty surprising. And then the other thing, of course, that is worth mentioning is just the fact that this is a surgical procedure, you know, and this is going to be a new concept. I mean, we are shifting towards that direction with subretinal gene therapies and PDS, et cetera, but we haven't had that out yet. So to see how it's going to be integrated with some of the excellent medical therapy options that we have, it's going to be interesting to see as well. I think those are all great points. I think the bottom line is that we need to really care, the, as Christina said, uh, you know, respect the cons and really have a good closure. Um, Nick is a fabulous intraocular surgeon. I don't know if I think that PDS is uh, uh, easier or more difficult than doing subretinal surgery. I think uh, my heart still beats faster when I'm doing subretinal surgery than PDS. And part of it could be that I've done a lot more PDS. So I think, you know, again, safety discussions with patients as well as efficacy and finding the right patient is, is the key. So I think I'm going to move on and tell you uh, about a little bit about the gene therapy data. So RGX314 is subretinal gene therapy that we discussed earlier. Uh, in the trial, there have been no IP-related inflammation or issues. Um, I think whatever they've seen is uh, routine post-surgical. The only thing they have seen recently is uh, RPE or pigmentary changes uh, in, in a large number of patients, especially in the higher dose. 
And, you know, we don't know what that means. I think it's still learning whether uh, this means anything or this is just a reaction to gene therapy. Um, and then ADVM022 intravitreal gene therapy, which is in clinic, you know, we have seen uh, early inflammation after the PO steroids were stopped. So that's why in the first two cohorts, you had um, 13 days of PO steroid that was switched to six weeks of topical steroids to, to make sure we can mitigate it. But even after that, there there is... Uh, some patients who need long-term drugs. Um, and, and I think uh, the good news is that the inflammation gets controlled with topical drops, but, but obviously there are some patients, uh, especially in, in cohort one still, uh, I think there are uh, one or two patients who are still on the drop. So I think the bottom line is, as I said earlier, there's no free lunch and each, each uh, uh, strategy has their risk and benefit profile that we need to evaluate. So, Christina, question for you. Do you see RPE or pigmentary changes in the patients you have done luxterna and subretinal surgery? Yes, Arshad. That's been noticed more and more as we've done more of those cases, and I was just going to share that with you. And just like you said, we don't understand the visual implications of those RPE changes yet or why they necessarily occur. They don't seem to definitively be traumatic. That's what was originally thought was maybe the jet stream of injecting the veretagene underneath the retina was causing that. But a lot of these have actually appeared postoperatively down the line, not necessarily right away. So I think those are things that we're all still learning about. What's nice about the RGX314 product is that you don't necessarily need to involve the foveal center, right? Veretagene, we do usually try to lift up the fovea. And so having pigmentary changes in those areas, of course, makes us a little bit more nervous. But these are the questions that have yet to be answered. And even simple things, I mean, most of us concentrate about talking uh, how to get safely into that potential space, into the subretinal space to create that bleb. But honestly, there's so much more to it. Like how quickly should you inject? What should that PSI be? Should you have a manual or aut automated, you know, foot pedal controlled injection? These are all things that we have yet to discover. And we're going to continue learning about as we use more and more products in that subretinal space. Oh yeah, I was going to ask a quick question just about the RPE, you know, changes. Do you know if they've done autofluorescence to see if there are any changes on autofluorescence associated with those? Yeah, and, and there are. Okay. Yep. There yeah, is. and they've done, you know, I think the work is being done. As Christina said, I think it's a new learning. It's something new we are seeing and we are still learning about it. But obviously, if you do a peripheral blab and you have some RPE changes, what does that really mean? Right. Uh, does it really matter while you're decreasing the treatment burden? So I think those are interesting questions. But I think the key is that the, uh, these Treatments are not ready for prime time, and we really still need to learn a lot about efficacy and safety. So, Chris, uh, quick question for you. ADVM022, great efficacy, 15 months, uh, no rescue injection in cohort one, but some, some patients are on drop over one year now. Does that really bother you if your patient takes one or two drops a day while not coming in to get injections? Is that a big deal? Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, no, that doesn't bother me. Um... You know, and again, uh, to Christine, I think's points uh, earlier, you know, were we to have some sort of home monitoring uh, that might incorporate AI, it'd really be a boon uh, to patients because to deliver truly on the promise of kind of eternal therapy requires still some surveillance uh, because otherwise there's still some burden in kind of resurfacing in clinic for visits. I think uh, those are really good points, uh, Chris. So again, I want to thank uh, all three of you for excellent discussions about safety with uh, agents that are currently available or in the pipeline. Um, 
for the audience, we'll uh, take a break now. And after the break, I will come back and present an interesting case for you. So this is a very interesting case, and I'd love to get your feedback on this management. It's an 83-year-old infectious disease retired physician. I've been seeing him for the last 10 years uh, in my clinic, and he really has gone through pretty much all the agents we have. He started on bevacizumab, then he was in ranibizumab, then he switched to a flibercept, and then he got back to ranibizumab. What happened with the flibercept is, you know, when we had those outbreaks of pen uh, uveitis, he got inflammation from one of those uh, uh, during that time, he totally recovered his vision, but it took him uh, two or three months to get back to his baseline. And he really is a very active person. He travels a lot. Uh, he likes to drive. So he really has told me that he's not going to use a flibercept anymore because of that response. So, you know, we've been waiting for other options for him. And before BOVU came out, we have been treating him monthly, but he really can come in monthly. He's always traveling and doing other things. So he usually comes every four to six weeks, even at four weeks with ranubizumab, he had fluid. So this is a picture from six weeks after ranubizumab injection. In the past, he was controlled with uh, every four to five weeks of flibercept. But again, because of inflammation, he didn't want to do that. And here is a patient that has actually lost vision, you know, 2080s baseline about 2040, and he has fluid. So when brolocizumab uh, came to the market in October uh, of last year, we started having a conversation even before to dry his retina. And this is uh, an injection uh, four weeks after the brolocizumab injection. And, you know, I made him come in because I said, I need to see how you look at, at four weeks. He's like, okay, fine. You know, I'll come in once for you. So he came in and then I told him that, you know, our options are to load or to observe. And he's like, whoa, what do you mean? I'm not going to get an injection that has never happened. So I actually observed him, but I said, then you have to come in more often. And he said, okay, as long as I don't get an injection, I'll work around uh, the schedule. So I brought him back in another month. So this is eight weeks post-brolocizumab injection. You, you saw in the last slide that the vision was better. And here it's also better than his uh, baseline. And then we were able to follow him even closer because now he's at eight weeks. So we start bringing him biweekly. And this is uh, 10 weeks after brolocizumab. And you can see vision is now back to his baseline, 2040, uh, that he had with uh, frequent aflibercept injections, but obviously can't go back because of history of inflammation from there. And now, you know, he was at 12 weeks, he uh, got fluid back and, and his vision decreased. So this is a retired physician. And, you know, while this was happening, I talked to him in detail, extensive detail about the safety uh, risk that we just talked about in this episode, you know, risk of retinal vasculitis, risk of retinal artery occlusion, high risk of intraocular inflammation. And he said, you know, as an infectious disease doctor, I'm cutting down my number of injections in a third, essentially, and I am, uh, I'm seeing better and my vision is better. So I am happy to take that one in one thousand uh, injection per injection risk of uh, losing vision. So he stays on it. Uh, he's still on it. He comes in every 10 weeks. His retina is dry. Um, his vision is stable and he's doing well. But obviously, as we discussed, we watch him really closely, dilating every, every time to make sure there's no inflammation. So um, any um, comments, Christina? No, Arshad, I really enjoyed this case. Thank you for sharing it. And in summary, I think here we have a patient who's received an enormous amount of anti-VEGF previously. And I think, again, this is a really great example of why having more options in our armamentarium is a good thing because you never know what will work for certain patients. 
I just had a couple of questions for you, Arshad. The first is uh, you did mention that the patient had an inflammatory reaction of Flibercept, and that's why he was transitioned off of that. But he also received many, many injections of the other agents as well. How many injections do you usually wait until you decide to try a different anti-VEGF agent? So I, I, I usually do like six uh, is my threshold, at least minimum six. And he was controlled. I think he's uh, one of those patients that he responds well initially to any therapy and over time you lose control, whether it's tachyphylaxis, whether it's progression of disease. Um, so he was on bevacizumab, then he was switched to ranibizumab doing well, then he started losing control. Then he was switched to a flibercep and, and he never lost control with the flibercep. He just had that uh, uh, big pan uveitis, which can happen with any agent, but no vasculitis. And he recovered his vision, but he just didn't want to have bad vision for two months. And he absolutely refused to receive a flibercept. The other point I really appreciated that you made, Arshad, was the social burden of these visits and how it does impact patients even when they're not getting an injection. I mean, I, I have the same experience where patients will come and they almost want the injection since they're already here. Sometimes they actually use those exact words to describe it because it is such an ordeal coming into the office for a lot of our patients who are elderly and especially right now during the COVID period of time. So what I wanted to ask you was I noticed that when you had started him on brolicizumab, you sort of marched out and took these baby steps and brought him back to see how he was responding before you would tweak that next interval. And I do the same exact thing, but it made me think about the recent presentations I've seen on home OCT monitoring. I mean, I think these are examples of where we really could uh, benefit our patients in reducing visit burden with home OCT. I mean, how do you feel about that uh, in light of the fact that I'm sure you were also monitoring for potential inflammatory effects? Well, I think uh, home OCT will be a good ad once it's available to anytime you're trying to stretch the limits in terms of durability. So I think whether it's bolosizumab, whether it's poor delivery system, um, anything gene therapy, I think we're going to be able to monitor these patients where they won't have to come in if the, if the algorithm uh, from home OCT uh, turns out to be pretty accurate. So I think really great point there, Christina, about uh, integrating uh, home OCT. I've never used it. Uh, Nick, Chris, or Christina, any of you have used home OCT yet? I've done I, it I myself. It. But... Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've done a demo at a, at a conference. That's about it. Yeah. But I think it has the potential really to change a little bit the way we do monitor some of our patients. And um, I'm excited. I think that's a great way to perhaps follow patients to see what kind of effects are, are being observed. I mean, I do what a lot of you guys do sometimes when they don't have a response at the four-week period. I'll, I'll bring them in at the two-week period just to see. And imagine if you could do that from, from a home setting. Thank you again to all my three uh, great faculty uh, members, Dr. Christina Wen, Dr. Nicholas London, and Dr. Chris Fuller. Um, I want to remind the audience uh, again to check out the images uh, from all the cases and uh, my case on itube.net. And also uh, you can listen to the older episodes in, the, in this podcast series um, by clicking on the links above. Thank you again to uh, my esteemed uh, faculty members, Dr. Christina Wang, Dr. Nicholas London, and Dr. Chris Fuller. I want to remind the audience uh, to check out images uh, from my case on itube.net. It will also have the other cases we have covered in this uh, series. Um, you can also uh, listen to the older episodes in the podcast 
feet. So this brings to an end uh, of this series of Wet AMD, the art of drug choice and the latest data. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day.